Blog Talk Radio. Two thousand years ago, the creator of the universe put on humanity. The Lord of heaven came to live on earth. This child was the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, fused together in indivisible oneness. In the United States, a census happens every 10 years, and basically it's no big deal. Just fill out a form and mail it in. And with the exception of new population numbers showing up in almanacs and on road signs, the effects of the census probably 
won't be noticed by most folks. But today, on Grace to You, John MacArthur shows you how the effects of one particular census, taken 2,000 years ago in Israel, has reverberated through the centuries all around the world. John is continuing his series, The Promise of Christmas. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, John, Christmas is close at hand, and so I have this question for you. Uh, What will you be doing in the next couple of weeks to prepare your family and friends, loved ones, uh, to celebrate Christmas in a meaningful way? Well, for us, because life is so caught up in, uh, in ministry, there will be uh, um, a long list of events that uh, will focus on Christmas, whether we're talking about life at the Master's University or the Master's Seminary or Grace to You or Grace Community Church or um, any of the other ministries that we connect with. Uh, as we get closer to Christmas, the events begin to escalate. And all of them are basically, you know, an opportunity to worship the Lord, an opportunity to express our gratitude for God's gift of His blessed Son, our Savior. And so we rejoice in them all. What it means is we will be enjoying fellowship with the people we love and the people we work with in ministry. We will be singing Christmas carols. I always say I hate that we have to wait till Christmas to sing Christmas carols. One of my favorite hymns Hark the Herald Angels Sing should not be reserved only for Christmas because it is so full of profound doctrine. But such is the way of tradition that it winds up getting relegated to the Christmas season. And I look forward to that, if for nothing else, than to sing many of those wonderful, wonderful hymns. And, of course, things will ramp up at home with uh, Patricia and myself and our kids and our grandkids and There will be some events along the way as we plan to get together as a family, uh, sometimes in our house, sometimes in the house of our kids. And it's a wonderful and sweet time as the uh, the family celebrates the birth of Christ. And, And that's what we want all of these events to do is to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. We try to minimize all the other things and make Christ the focus of everything. Thanks, John. And now, friend, to help us focus our minds and hearts on Christ and energize our worship of Him during this Christmas season. Here once again is John MacArthur to continue the study on the promise of Christmas. Now as we come to these seven verses, and I'm only going to give you the first of them, he gives us three settings here. He gives us a world setting, he gives us a national setting with Israel, and he gives us a personal setting. And all three of these are very important in identifying the nature of the Messiah in identifying the fulfillment of prophecy, in identifying His role to the world. Let's look at the world setting. I find this fascinating. I take off my theologian's hat from chapter 1 and put on my historian's hat. The world setting is in verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Critical. Critical that everybody go to his own city. Critical that Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, which was their own city, so that they would be there when the Messiah was born, so the prophecy of Micah would come to pass. Absolutely critical. Little did Caesar Augustus know that he was being moved by the Spirit of God to do exactly what he did on time, on schedule, to effect exactly the result God wanted. 
There was a few days in which Joseph and Mary had to be in Bethlehem, right at the very time of the birth of the child. God knew exactly when that moment was, exactly when that day was. He knew when they had to be there, and He had planned for that to happen under the authority and power of a Caesar who was far removed from the little village of Bethlehem and utterly removed from the purposes of God and utterly ignorant of the Word of God. But nonetheless, He was a main player in bringing the prophecy to pass, which shows the mighty, incomprehensible, providential work of Almighty God. Verse 1 says, Now it came about in those days. What days? Well, the days just spoken of. The days of chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. In those days, Herod, by the way, was still on the throne. And he was on the throne when Jesus was born and for a little while afterwards. We know a little about him, don't we? We know about his animosity toward the birth of one who might take his throne and how he slaughtered all the babies in that region, hoping that somehow he would kill a rival king who had been born. So we know about Herod. It was in those days, the same days when Gabriel came to Zacharias and Elizabeth, the same days when Gabriel came to Mary, the same days when John was born, the days of Herod. Herod was still alive, though he died soon after the birth of Jesus. These were the days not only of Herod ruling in Israel. Herod wasn't even a Jew, by the way. He was an Idumean. He was an Edomite. And the Edomites were despised by the Israelites. They had been cursed because of the way they treated Israel and God. But nonetheless, they had an Idumean king by the name of Herod who was a vassal king under Rome. He was allowed to have a measure of power in Israel. Uh, Caesar Augustus was, was a wise man. He was a, in fact, he was a brilliant and astute man. And he gave uh, the nations and the provinces under the authority of Rome in the Roman Empire some freedom to operate their own government to lessen the tension a little bit, and that was the reason Herod still had some authority in Israel. Herod was still alive, as I said. These were the days, though, of Roman occupation in Israel. These were the days not only of Roman occupation, but that dreaded Roman taxation. Those two things really bothered the Jews greatly. They hated Roman occupation because Romans were Gentiles. They didn't like Gentiles. They felt that Gentiles were outside the covenant. They felt that Gentiles were unclean. A Jew rarely, uh, if he was committed to his Judaistic tradition, wouldn't go into the home of a Gentile because he would be defiled by even entering that place. He wouldn't eat on utensils prepared by Gentiles because they would be unclean and defiled. If he had to leave the borders of Israel and travel in a Gentile land, he would come back and he would do what's become a familiar phrase. He would shake the dust off before entering Israel lest he bring Gentile dirt in and pollute his nation. They had no love for the Gentiles. And they had no love particularly for the Romans because they had these many gods and they were, they were a multi-god nation. They were polytheistic. They had all these idols which, of course, were distasteful to the Jews at that time as well and had been ever since the Babylonian captivity many years before. They brought their idols in on the banners that they waved, on the suits of armor when they had the image of Caesar. They brought their idols in when they put Caesar's image on a coin and they believed Caesar to be a god. So they saw the coinage of Rome as idols. They hated those expressions of idolatry and Gentile disbelief in the true God. And secondly, they despised Roman taxation. They didn't think the Romans had any right to be in their land. They certainly didn't think they had any right to exact taxes from them. And mostly they hated... More severely, the Jews who bought franchises to collect taxes for Rome, they were the ultimate outcasts, the ultimate defectors, the ultimate traitors, people like Matthew and Zacchaeus 
you meet them in the New Testament. When somebody really wanted to call you an outcast, he would call you a tax collector. So they hated Roman taxation. They hated Roman occupation. Now, the best we can do in dating the birth of Christ is this. It came about in those days. Sometime in those days during the time of Caesar, a decree went out. Sometimes, by the way, Luke is very precise. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Boy, that is really specific stuff. Sometimes he's very, very specific, but sometimes he's very general. For example, chapter 3, verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Now here, he's not very specific. He just says, in those days, in those days, a decree went out. A decree is an imperial edict. Same uh, is used in Acts 17.7. You can use that as a comparative. Now this is common. The emperor, that's what imperial means, the emperor made an edict. He would pass a law or a mandate, a given order, and uh, it would come from Rome, from the throne, and it would be addressed to all the subjects and it would have certain requirements. This edict went from the emperor right out of Rome, was carried to far off uh, Judea, and had critical bearing on the birth of Jesus Christ. Critical bearing. Now, let's look at the edict. This edict that came out of Rome went out from the reigning Caesar of the day, Caesar Augustus. Neither of those is his name. Caesar is a title like king or emperor or pharaoh. It is not a name. But this man, Caesar Augustus, was a remarkable man. He literally created the world that facilitated the spread of the gospel. Not only did he do that in general, but in specific, he made an edict that caused Joseph and Mary to have to go by a certain date to Bethlehem where they would have their baby and fulfill prophecy. To sum up the character of this man, we could say once... um, Once you look at him in the beginning of his rule, he was ruthless. I suppose he had to be to affect what he did. He mellowed out later. He became a wise administrator, a famous organizer, especially competent in the organization of the military and his own bodyguard, which are referred to in Philippians 1.13. He chose his general wisely. Consequently, he won uh, many, many great battles. He had many generals. He had tremendous skill in dealing with his subjects. He gave them autonomy. He gave them freedom. He allowed the conquered provinces. They, the Rome had conquered them all. He allowed them to retain um, some of their own um, independent rule and self-rule. He respected their customs, their religion, all of that. He stimulated the arts. He encouraged cleaning up literature and making it more noble. He was a great builder, amazing man, humanly speaking. Although he did uh, pass a law that made adultery a crime, his own personal life really did undermine the sanctity of marriage. He had a wife by the name of Scribonia who didn't produce a son. That was a bad thing in ancient times. Uh, She did give birth to a daughter, Julia. So he had a daughter named Julia, but he divorced Scribonia because she couldn't give him a son. He married Livia, some lady he'd supposedly fallen in love with. But Livia already had a son by a former marriage. Her son's name was Tiberius. So he forced Tiberius to marry his daughter, Julia. And therefore, Tiberius sort of became a son-in-law, and he passed to him the right to become the next Caesar. 
Tiberius, by the way, was married at the time, so he had him divorce his wife to marry his daughter. Soap operas are not new, folks, and they've always existed in courts of royalty. Let's look at his edict. He made an edict, and this was the edict. The census was to be taken of all the inhabited earth. All the inhabited earth would, would simply be another way to say all the known world, which would be all the Roman Empire, which covered the known world in that area. A census, apographe, simply a registration, to write something. This was done for two reasons. It was done to, um, to draw people into military service, to find out who all of the military-age young men were, but the Jews had been exempted from that. In wisdom, as I said, uh, Caesar Augustus had uh, given a little uh, in to some of these nations and some of their quirks and religious convictions, and the Jews were free from providing military forces for Rome. The census on this occasion was not for that. We know what it was for uh, because Joseph and Mary were involved in it. It was for the registration of a census for the purpose of taxation. Taxation. This was the other reason they took a census. And they were to go and register their name, their occupation, uh, their property, their family, entered into the Rome IRS agency for the purpose of taxation. This was to happen everywhere in the entire Roman world. Now, I want to give you some little history on this, very important. This census is, uh, is called the first census in verse 2, the first census. Now, that's important because Caesar Augustus didn't just call for one census. He called for a series of censuses apparently at 14-year intervals. And you can track these series of censuses every 14 years all the way, I think it's to the year 270 A.D. Every 14 years there was a census. And he was big on this. He was very careful, very thoughtful, and very statistical. When he died, he left in his own handwriting rather copious statistics on taxation which were derived from the census that had been taken uh, during his reign. We do read uh, some literature that's existing today from antiquity out of Egypt that indicates that Egypt was committed to census every 14 years. And so that supports the idea because Egypt, uh, at the defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, came under the power of Rome and apparently went on to carry out these every 14-year census events. That would have been very similar to what Syria would have done. Syria was the region in which Judea exists. So when it says Quirinius was the governor of Syria, that would include Judea. It was a component of Syria at large. Well, Rome then passed this edict on that everybody had to go and register because of the census. The Jews hated this. It was alien to them. It was a pagan thing. It uh, was intruding into their life distastefully. They wanted nothing to do with it. But God was at work, just like He had been work in, the, work in the decree of Cyrus that liberated Israel to send them back to reestablish their nation after the captivity, just as He was at work in the case of Nebuchadnezzar who ended up doing exactly what God wanted him to do for His own purposes. God takes pagan kings, pagan rulers, and uses them as His own servants for His own purposes. Don't you think for one minute that God isn't sovereign in all the palaces of the world? He is, and He was in the palace of Caesar Augustus. Verse 2 says this was the first census, the first of the cycle of 14-year censuses which Caesar Augustus had set in motion. Now, we get a further input here. When was the first one? Well, it was taken while a man named Quirinius was governor of Syria. Syria, again, is that large area in which Judea would exist. And over that area, this man, Quirinius, had some responsibility. 
Let me take the word governor for a minute. It's a non-technical word. It doesn't mean he was the number one man. It doesn't define for us the nature of his leadership. It's a word like leader. It's a word like ruler, person in authority. It's not specific. It's non-technical. The Romans had technical titles, which you can see in a pecking order, in a hierarchy. There were legates, there were proconsuls, there were prefects, there were procurators, and those are identifiable connected roles in the hierarchy of Rome. Governor is a generic for leader. So this was the first census taken, and it was taken at a time while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, the reason that Luke is telling us is to help us pinpoint the time of the birth of Christ. This is a historical event. This isn't a figment of somebody's imagination. It was in that first census that occurred under the authority of Caesar Augustus, and it occurred at the time that there was a ruler in Syria by the name of Quirinius. This uh, helps us get a little closer to when this happened. And by the way, I want to tell you something. The people who read Luke in Luke's day would know exactly when it was. We don't anymore because so much time has passed. Very hard for us to be precise about this. His name was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. He was known to have governed Syria. Listen carefully. A.D. 6 to 9. A.D. 6 to 9. A well-known census was taken in Palestine in A.D. 6. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, records that it sparked a violent Jewish revolt, which is mentioned by Luke, who quotes Gamaliel, and it's mentioned by Luke in Acts 5.37. So Luke even refers to this census which provoked a revolt which occurred in A.D. 6. Quirinius was responsible for administering that census. He also played a major role in quelling the subsequent rebellion. However, listen very carefully, that census can't be the census Luke has in mind here because it occurred about a decade after the death of Herod. And I have a note on that in Matthew 2.1. It's much too late to fit here. So we know there was a census in A.D. 6. We know that Quirinius at that point was a leader in Syria. But here you have a little indication that this is not that one. Verse 2, this is the first census. So if that one occurred in 6 A.D. and they were normally at 14-year intervals, all we need to do to find the first one is back up how many years? 14 years. That would take us to 8 B.C. 8 B.C. Now, in, uh, in my note, I say in the light of uh, Luke's meticulous care as a historian, it would be unreasonable to charge him with an obvious anachronism or an error. Indeed, archaeology has vindicated Luke. A fragment of stone discovered at Tivoli, which is near Rome, in A.D. 1764. This is a fragment of stone discovered. It contains an inscription in honor of a Roman official who it states was twice governor of Syria and Phoenicia during the reign of Augustus. Now we're starting to make sense. Somebody was governor twice. That could be just what we need. Once in A.D. 6 to 9 and another time previously back in the B.C. time when that first census took place is what Luke says. The name of the official is not given on that fragment, but among his accomplishments are listed details that as far as is known can fit no one other than Quirinius, and we do have some historical records about him. Isn't that wonderful? And we had to wait till 1764 to have the Bible verified. The Bible is true. And whenever there is something found like that, it always verifies it. Thus, he must have served as governor in Syria twice. He may have been a military ruler or leader at the same time. 
that history records Varus was the civil governor there. With regard to the dating of the census, taken a step further, some ancient re records found in Egypt mention a worldwide census ordered in 8 B.C. That would be exactly right. Now we've got Egyptian material saying there was one in 8. That fits the 14-year pattern exactly. That has some problems, though, because when you put all the chronology of the birth of Christ together, you can't have it any earlier than 6 B.C. And probably even 4 B.C. is better. How do you solve that problem? Pretty simple, really. Augustus probably made the decree in 8 B.C., but Judea didn't comply with it until two to four years later, and that's what I put in the note. It was actually carried out in Palestine two to four years later, most likely because of political difficulties between Rome and Herod and conflicts. So let me tell you something else. Why else would Joseph and Mary go down to Bethlehem in the dead of winter sometime in the in late part of the year anyway, when it could be cold, when it could be rainy, when it could be snowy, why would she, nine months pregnant, be bumping on a mule or walking 85 to 90 miles from the north down uh, really upward to Bethlehem because it's a scent in terms of uh, the terrain? Why would she do that at the very end of her pregnancy unless there had been a deadline dropped a la April 15th? It must have gotten to the place where perhaps non-compliance on the part of Israel had reached its limit and Caesar had said, that's it, this is the deadline and you've got to be there by then. Otherwise, it would seem reasonable that they would have waited until the child was born. At some later time, Joseph could have gone on his own and taken care of the matter. It may be an indication that there was some extremity that had been perpetuated by the reluctance of Israel to comply. And after all, Judea was a far away land from Rome, and certainly loved to exercise its independence. Therefore, the precise year of Christ's birth can't be known with certainty. We don't know. Uh, the people who uh, read Luke originally probably had a, a good idea, may have known exactly. But it was probably no earlier than 6 B.C. and certainly no later than 4 B.C. by our dating. As I said, Luke's readers would have known. So, this is the best we can do at setting the time by our calendar, somewhere by what we call, they didn't call it the dating that we do because that came later when we dated B.C. and A.D., but somewhere in what we call 6 to 4 B.C., this birth of Christ took place. And it says in verse 3, and here's the point, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. That sets the scene. That sets the scene. There's no other reason why they're going to travel at a time like this. Now, the Romans would normally register people in their own place of residence. They didn't make them go back to some initial homeland. That must have been a Jewish custom or something that Herod required. And the Jews, we know, were big on ancestry. You remember when they came into the land of Canaan, the whole land of Canaan? You remember when they entered, it was divided into tribal areas? And every tribe had their own area. And within those tribal areas, there were towns and villages that belonged to certain families. And through the years, those families were connected to those villages and they owned the land. You remember every seven years, the land would go back to the original owners. So their genealogies were very, very important. They kept very careful, uh, very detailed records of families. And so they would go back to their tribal area, back to their family home area, back to their father's village. That's where they went to register. And that sets the scene perfectly to put Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem when the baby is born in specific fulfillment of Micah 5.2, this by virtue of a decree from a pagan, godless monarch who had no idea 
of any word of any Hebrew prophet or of any of its significance. This was the world setting. This was how God was controlling the world events crucial to the birth of Christ. Set everything in motion for what for that little couple must have been a miserable trip physically, distressing her to go far from home, far from her mother, far from her family, far from everybody who knew her and loved her and cared about her, to have a baby on the road, as it were, in an obscure place. And remember, she was 13 or 14 and her husband was 15. But it was essential. And they must have gone because they didn't have a choice. There are no accidental occurrences, folks, in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Had the Emperor Augustus made his decision three months earlier or three months later or one month earlier or one month later or maybe one week earlier or one week later, Jesus wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem. But He was. God knew how long it would take to get the registration machinery in place. God knew how long Herod would resist it. God knew how long it would take for that little couple to trek those 85 to 90 miles in the winter. God knew exactly how long it would take so that they would be there for just a few days, but in those days the baby would be born. Every single detail was in the hand of Almighty God. And God still directs history. And He still holds every king, every monarch, every ruler in His hand for His own purposes. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that You are the omnipotent, sovereign God who rules all the affairs of men. And all men are subject to your sovereign providence and power. Help us, Lord, to worship you, the God of sovereign power, the God of history. We thank you for this most monumental of all moments in history, when your Son and our Savior was born, Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. In his name we pray. That's John MacArthur continuing his current series on Grace to You titled The Promise of Christmas. Along with teaching each day on radio, John serves as president of the Masters University and Seminary, both in the Los Angeles area. Keep in mind, the support of listeners like you plays a key role in helping us get verse-by-verse teaching, like today's lesson, to the spiritually hungry around the world. To help us take the gospel truth to folks in your neighborhood and far beyond, make a tax-deductible donation today as you get in touch. Mail your gift to Grace to You, Post Office Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. And remember, you can also make a one-time donation online or even set up a convenient reoccurring donation. Do that online or when you call 855-GRACE. A toll-free number, 800-55-GRACE. And remember, you can also give at the website, gty.org. And our thanks to you for helping us start 2018 on solid financial footing. There are other ways that you can support this ministry, none more important than praying for John and the staff here. We'd also love to hear how John MacArthur's teaching is strengthening you spiritually. If you've been challenged by something you read at the Grace to You blog online, And especially if God has used grace to you to draw someone you know or you yourself to Christ, make sure you let us know. And please tell us the call letters of the station you listen to. Share your feedback by email letters at gty.org. 
or through the regular mail, Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. And on behalf of John MacArthur, our producer, Corey Williams, and the entire staff, thanks for listening today. Come back tomorrow as John continues helping you cut through the clutter of the holiday season and focus your heart and mind on Christ. Join us for another half hour of Unleashing God's Truth, one verse at a time, here on Grace to You. Two thousand years ago, the Creator of the universe put on humanity. The Lord of Heaven came to live on earth. This child was the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, fused together in indivisible oneness. You've probably known the main details of the Christmas story since you were little because of a school Christmas play or maybe you attended a yearly Christmas church service or your parents read you the story every year. Yet, you know, there's always something new and wonderful to learn when you explore the wonders of Jesus' birth. Today on Grace to You Weekend, John MacArthur, president of the Master's University and Seminary, is going to help you do just that with his study called The Promise of Christmas. So open your copy of the Bible to Luke chapter 2 or follow along using the Study Bible app on your mobile device. And here with today's lesson is John MacArthur. Luke, wanting us to grasp the significance of what's going on, provides for us, as any good historian does, a setting for this event. The event is verse 7, she gave birth. The setting is what enriches it and informs it. And he, he works his way down starts with the world setting, and then a national setting, and then a personal setting. First, we learn the role that the larger world played in this, then the role that is uniquely designed by God for the nation Israel, and then the particular circumstances of the couple in Bethlehem and the birth of the baby. And so we get the big picture narrowed down to the little picture so that we can grasp in every perspective the wonderful, solemn richness of this remarkable, unheard-of event. Now we come to the personal setting, and this is where the charm of the story comes. The personal setting. Luke's uh, focus now is not on the world scene. It's not on the national scene. It's on the personal circumstances that are so interesting. It came about, verse 6, that while they were there, I stop there and I say, okay, where? Bethlehem. Where in Bethlehem? We have no idea. We have no idea. They were just there. We don't know how long they were there. They were there days because the days were completed for her to give birth. They were there. We don't know where. For how long, we don't know. Some days, maybe three, maybe four, maybe six, maybe seven. I don't know, maybe eight. I, we don't know. They were there. It doesn't tell us where they were, but it does tell us at the end of verse 7 there was no room for them in the inn. And I'll tell you this, if there had been room in an inn for the prior days, nobody in their right mind would have kicked them out when she was about to deliver the baby. And some have suggested that for the first few days they were there, they stayed with relatives. Well, what relative in the world is going to kick them out on the day of the birth of the child? 
The fact of the matter is, wherever they were when the baby was born was where they'd been the whole time they were there. They just were there for an unstated time in an undesignated place. Simple words with, which excite profound imagination. They were the homeless. They were the homeless. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. There were certain shelters, as there are today, provided for people who were homeless. Public shelters. And you can be sure of this. The Roman soldiers, the Roman registrars who were doing the registration of the people, all the Roman dignitaries, believe me, occupied whatever few guest rooms existed in a little tiny place like Bethlehem, which probably when you think of an inn, you think of some kind of three-story motel. No such thing existed. Whatever accommodations there were would have been taken by the officials, the Roman officials or the Jewish officials who were running this whole thing. So they were there. And the days were completed for her to give birth. Nine months was up. Absolutely nothing said about the details. Nothing. Luke is careful to tell us that she gave birth to her firstborn son, pro tatakan, firstborn. He does not use monogenes, only son. The Roman Catholic Church would have you believe she had only one child and she was a perpetual virgin till her death. That is not true. She had many sons and daughters. It says in Matthew 1, 24 and 25 that He kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. After that, Joseph and Mary had normal relationships as any husband and wife would, and they had boys and they had girls. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, we're introduced to Jesus' brothers. In chapter 13, they're even named for us. Jesus' brothers who were born to Joseph and Mary, half-brothers actually, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Verse 56, and his sisters are mentioned as well. And, you know, the crowd at that point was incredulous. They were saying, you know, Jesus, this is, this is nobody special. They said, this is just a carpenter's son. His mother is Mary, his brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, they're all with us. They just looked at that family as an ordinary family. They got, they got a whole family full of kids. We meet his brothers again later on. Luke records a, their appearance in uh, chapter 8. We read about his brothers in John 2, John 7, that they didn't believe. We read about his brothers again in Acts 1. Jesus was not the only son Mary had. Jesus was not the monogenes, the only begotten. He was the prototokon, the firstborn. And you see, that's very important because not only is he the firstborn, uh, which, of course, means that she was a virgin, but he is the firstborn, which, of course, means that he has the right to the inheritance. He has the primogenitor, as it was called, the primary right to the family inheritance. Frankly, Joseph didn't have a lot to leave him. He was a tradesman. He was a carpenter. Mary didn't have any great estate, as far as we know, to leave him. But what they did have was the right to the throne of Israel. There hadn't been a king in a long time in Israel, a long time. The Babylonians had devastated that whole thing. And they were followed by the Medo-Persians. And they were followed by the Greeks. And they were followed by the Romans. And somebody was always ruling in Israel, but it wasn't in the royal line of David. But the royal line was still there. And it was there in the life of Joseph and in the life of Mary. 
And what they passed on to Jesus was the right to rule on the throne of David. He was the firstborn. If you study the Old Testament, you find how important that firstborn inheritance was. And then some simple details that I find amazing. She wrapped him in cloths. <laughs> you ever ask, why is that there? Because that was normal. That was routine. This is just a birth like every other birth. And a Jewish mother did this typically. You can find this in all the indications in, in history about babies that are born. They would wrap them in cloths. The Greek word is she swaddled him. Swaddled him. That's why we talk about swaddling cloths. Swaddle is an old English word to describe wrapping. And here's what they would do. The custom was take long strips of cloth and wrap the arms and wrap the legs and then wrap the little body tightly. This was for warmth. This was for security. I mean, that little baby in the womb is in there all cuddled and nestled tightly in there and all of a sudden comes out into this stark hospital room Nothing touching it. It's little extremities flailing in every way. No wonder they're screaming. This is a violent experience. <laughs> they would just take that little baby immediately. And they, they also believed that wrapping up those limbs and wrapping up that little body protected that little child. Um, also believed that it helped to keep their bones straight when they grew in early life. The point is she treated the baby like any other baby. This is just a normal little baby. This is just a baby like other babies. Physically looked like any other child. Physically treated like any other child. No royal robes, no fancy clothing. Didn't come out with a little halo over his head. <laughs> came out like everybody else comes out. Same exact way. No doubt kissing that little boy as she wrapped him tightly, and warmly, and caressed him, nursed him. And then it says, most interestingly, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Manger is the word fatne. Fatne in Greek. It means a feeding trough. A feeding trough. Uh, by the way, it never says in the Bible Jesus was born in a stable. It's not in there. So if you've been looking for it, you won't find it. It doesn't say he was born in a stable. It doesn't use the word stable. A tradition, old tradition is that he was born in a cave. It doesn't say he was born in a cave. All it does say is he was laid in a manger, and from that we, we can deduce that it was a, a stable because that's an animal feeding trough, and it says there was no room for them in the inn. And that indicates that they couldn't get into the facility for people, and so in every facility for people in ancient times, there was an adjacent facility for the animals which they had with them when they traveled. You, you, you see a motel, and immediately outside a motel, what do you see? A parking lot. Well, the means of transportation in ancient times was animals, and so they carried goods on their animals. If you were a traveling salesman, you had a beast of burden to carry your goods. That's how it was. If you were a traveling family, you had beast of burden to carry the women and children. And so there would be adjacent to every place to stay, a place for the animals and the feed trough as well. And the indication was there was no room for them in the guest house, and they were outside and the little one was laid in a feeding trough. Down in verse 16, it refers to that again. When the shepherds finally came to see him, they found the baby as he lay in the feed trough. Now, that is pretty good indication that it was a stable. There was no room in the inn. Let me talk about that for a minute. There's so much 
confusion about that scenario. I remember when I was a little kid, I think I was about eight, I was selected to play the innkeeper's son in the Christmas pageant. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget it, because I wore this funny little tunic and they put makeup on my legs, you know. And as a little guy, I thought that was so strange. But I was the innkeeper's son, and the innkeeper was a really rotten guy, really rotten guy. And he wouldn't let Jesus' mother and dad in. And so his son grew up to be Barabbas. <laughs> that was the story. And I, so I was, I was the childhood bad guy, Barabbas. <laughs> Frankly, it was poor casting. Worse than, <laughs> worse than that, it was a ridiculous fabrication. But anyway, they made this innkeeper into such a bad guy, his kid turned out to be Barabbas arch-criminal of Israel, you remember, who uh, was offered to the crowd instead of Jesus. Well, that was all apocryphal. But there have been a lot of strange things about the poor innkeeper. Well, as far as we know, there wasn't one. Let me tell you why. In is the word kataluma, but it's not the normal Greek word for in. There's a different word for in in the Greek used in, for example, chapter 10 of Luke, verse 34. This word simply means shelter. It means place of lodging. It means just guest facilities or guest quarters. It doesn't refer to an actual inn being operated for feeding and housing guests as such. It's, it's a very, very broad word. It's a lodging place and probably refers to a place of public shelter, more like a campground. It's very unlikely that there would have been an actual commercial inn in this little village, but they would have some kind of public area. Typically, they would build it on four sides, two floors. It would be like a shelter, the top part being like a loft in a barn. One part of it might even be enclosed or it might have some, some rather primitive ability to close the doors, but it would be very, very primitive kind of places where people in transit could stay. And they would perhaps have four sides and in the middle the animals would be kept where they would be protected and, and kept from people who would steal them and their goods would be kept there as well. Perhaps uh, such a caravan stopping station or a public guest facility would have as well places on the second floor and the first floor for the people to stay where they could keep their animals close by. This would have been an overcrowded situation. I already told you the Romans would have probably taken up most of the spots as well as some Jewish officials. And then the people coming back to their hometown to register, the place became very, very crowded. The rooms were all taken. Again, it was probably, as I said, public shelter. They wound up, this little couple, just staying with the animals outside the appropriate quarters. We don't know how many days Joseph and Mary were huddled in that kind of a place. We don't know when they registered or if they had to wait a long time to get to the head of the line to register. None of those details are given for us. The downstairs guest rooms, the upstairs loft, whatever kind of facility it was to house these people was full, and they were bedded down with the animals. So there probably wasn't any kind of innkeeper who shut them out. It was just the nature of the situation. The tradition, as I said, goes back that this all happened in a cave or that there was a cave nearby. This caused Helena, the mother of Constantine, to build a church on top of some cave that was presumed to be the site. If you go to Bethlehem today, you'll go to a church uh, you'll go into that church, and it's a horrible place, frankly. It's an awful place full of smells and bells and hanging stuff and clutter, and you'll wander down into this hole, and they'll 
there'll be a star and a hole, and that's supposed to be the cave, and that is um, not, of course, known by us. It's the traditional site that the church you see there today is not the one built by the mother of Constantine, it's the one built by Justinian. But the glitter and the, the trappings of that thing certainly wouldn't be anything like the stench and the smell and the odor and the crowd and all that was going on in the place where Joseph and Mary were. When Jesus came into the world, then He came in the most comfortless conditions, smelly, filthy. This is the wonder of grace, though, isn't it? And this is part of the story that when God came down, He came all the way down. He thought His equality with God not something to be held on to, but He gave it up and humbled Himself, and He humbled Himself all the way down, not just to a stinking stable, but to become a substitute for stinking sinners and bear the stench of our guilt in His own body. He came down to the poor and the lowly and the humble and the base and the wicked. He came down to the common people to bring His glorious salvation. It was fitting in a sense then that He was born in a stinking, smelly stable because what smelled far worse to the nostrils of God than the odor of animals is the odor of sinners. He sent the Savior all the way down into the lives of the lowly and the whole picture of that scene is a metaphor for the stench of sin which Jesus bore in His own body. His little cloths wrapped in His little body must have collected the smell uh, it would have been the smell of animals, the stench of animals, the smell of fires burning in there to keep people warm, the smell of the humanity that milled around in that place, the filthiest place imaginable, An unthinkable entrance for the world into the world for God's Son, sweat and pain and blood and coldness and manure and straw and odors. But He came all the way down to the stench of sin to bear in His own body our sins on the cross. And uh, this was a picture and metaphor of the condescension of God. He came all the way down, all the way down, all the way down to the smell of a stable, all the way down to a smell, the smell of a sinner like you and like me. They had no room for Him then. They still don't have any room for Him. The, the writer John says He was in the world. The world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own. His own received Him not. But He came for sinners. He came all the way down to bear in His own body the wretched, wicked sin that belongs to us. The smelly stable was simply a metaphor for sin and its wretchedness. What a picture. So we come from the world's setting to the national setting and the fulfillment of a Hebrew prophet's statement that He would be born in Bethlehem all the way down to the circumstances of His birth which speak of His lowliness. He controls, does God, the great kings of the world. He fulfills the prophecies of Scripture, and He comes all the way to the lowly sinner. Sovereign God, God of Scripture, God of the humble sinner, coming all the way down. Well, it was a, in some ways a sad moment because of the obscurity of it all. But that didn't last. At that same time, some angels began to tell what was going on to some shepherds. And we'll look at that next time. That's John MacArthur helping you make Christ the centerpiece of your Christmas celebration. The study is called The Promise of Christmas here on Grace to You Weekend. 
Uh, you know, John, you spend all but a couple of minutes of each program teaching uh, God's Word to us, but in, in light of the upcoming Christmas celebration, I know it's appropriate for you to take a few moments and mention some items that our listeners want to know about. In fact, uh, these are probably gifts that you'll be giving to people on your list this year. Well, that is absolutely sure. Um, I'm already passing out these gifts, as I do throughout most of the year. Uh, So let me tell you what we're talking about. Christmas gifts that transform lives, that help us grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. And here's a note. You cannot use the standard shipping option and get resources in time for Christmas. You must use the second-day air option, and you must order by phone or at the website. And here's what I would suggest you order the New Testament Commentary Series. Now, I know that's 34 volumes. That may be more than you want. Some people want the whole series, and I understand that. But, of course, that means there are 34 separate volumes on the books of the New Testament, verse-by-verse explanation. This is how you really come to understand the depth of Scripture. The New Testament Commentary Series is available, any of the volumes or all of them, collectively. Great Christmas gift for someone who is a lifelong serious student of Scripture. And then a reminder about the MacArthur Study Bible, in particular the 20th anniversary edition, a beautiful, beautiful edition commemorating 20 years of the Study Bible. It's in the New King James because it was originally, so it is in this 20th anniversary edition. It comes in really one of the most beautiful hardcovers I've ever seen, and additionally in a premium leather cover. And you cannot buy these anywhere. They are only available from Grace to You, and only while the supply lasts. You can also order the Study Bible in the New American Standard Translation, the ESV, or several non-English translations as well. And then I want to mention the MacArthur Daily Bible as you start a new year. Maybe it's time to read the Bible on a daily basis. The MacArthur Daily Bible is a reading plan, a section from the Old Testament, the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. This sets the course for your day and for your year. Here's a special offer. When you order any MacArthur Study Bible or Daily Bible, we'll send you a free copy of the Jesus Answer Book, a beautiful little book that answers the questions that folks have about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, whether you want the commentary series, the Study Bible, or the Daily Bible, Make sure you contact us by phone or online to set up the right shipping option for pre-Christmas delivery. These gifts will have a spiritual encouragement for your friends and loved ones long after the decorations have gone down, and you'll be helping them get off uh, 2018 to a great start. Order the MacArthur New Testament Commentary Series, or perhaps the MacArthur Study Bible or the Daily Bible, or any of our resources. And to ensure items are delivered by Christmas Day, get in touch with us this week. You can order by calling our toll-free number, 1-800-554-7223. That number is easy to remember, is 855-GRACE. As John mentioned, to ensure your delivery arrives in time for Christmas, you'll need to call during our normal business hours, Monday through Friday, 7.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Pacific Time. That number to call again, 855-GRACE. Now remember, with each Bible you purchase, we'll include a free copy of the Jesus Answer Book. It's a helpful resource to answer any questions you may have about Christ, why He came to earth, and what it means to have faith in Him. 
That's our free gift to you as you order the MacArthur Study Bible, the Daily Bible, or any of the MacArthur New Testament commentaries. Call our toll-free number, 855-GRACE, during regular business hours. One more time, that's 800-55-GRACE. Our customer service staff is there to help you place your order and ensure it arrives in time for Christmas. And now for John MacArthur and the entire staff, I'm Carl Miller, reminding you to watch Grace to You television Sundays on DirecTV, channel 378, or check your local listing for broadcast times in your area. And then come back next week as John continues looking at the promise of Christmas with another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, on Grace to You Weekend. I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago Outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the By far. Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. There's none like you in existence. You are God and you need no assistance. Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man. According to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan. I changed even since this song began. Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us. All that you do will certainly last. You are the rock that we can trust. Shows us back in eternity past. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was. Have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, about my ups 
ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly, at times I wonder how this can be, surely it's because of the cost, when Jesus paid the full penalty, and bore the burden of sin's great cost, I'm saved by grace and faith in God, I look to Christ and I trust he died, so even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified, his work is finished that cannot change, and with this knowledge I am free, forever this grace it will remain, because of what happened on Calvary. Ambassador 
or fanatic. The gospel was my tonic. With Christ, I couldn't lose. But to walk with God like Enoch, I knew I couldn't cruise. This walk is a beast, but nothing's greater than the cross. Saw the mark of the east and the raiders of the laws. While Tower Records was choosing to carry G Unit, I was on that revolutionary theme music. The brothers from the Lou held it down as well. But we noticed a big shift in 2012. Around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism, Christian hip hop found a different algorithm and crossed over without taking the crossover. Made us all sober. Years later, is it all over? Trip asked me if I was still motivated. I was quiet, but I wanted to say no, I hate it. Cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion. I love them as brothers in Christ, but not their conclusions. They want to reach the world by all means. Keep pursuing it. But tell me why they got to diss the church while they doing it. That's what I wanted to say, but I ain't say it though. But no more laying low. I want them to play it slow. And I ain't dissing them. My prayers are the proof. Like Boaz without Ruth is unity without truth. CHH is like gorillas in the mist With no brotherly love It's like Philly don't exist What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere Cats appear most concerned about a rap career Brothers overseas being slain in the sand While we're vain in our plan Taking fame in some fans And I ain't got time to philosophize Satan got a plot device I'm seeing lots of guys apostatize On top of all that Donald Trump's the president It's all good though Cause Jesus Trump's the president So more than ever I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled And we ain't never gonna stop working the Corey Red. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to praise and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. In the gospel, God addresses our depravity. The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony. He rose from the grave with abundant grace. And when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place. Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess. No rest was left till Jesus put death to death. The beauty of the victory truly is a mystery. The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history. Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. Since our champion in the great war suffered, we gonna proclaim his death like the Lord suffer. So welcome to the Still Jesus Project. Yo, we just getting started and we got a lot left. That's Shailen with Random Thought Streets. And you could get his album called Still Jesus out now. Uh, see that one for more about him. L-A-M-P-M-O-D-E dot C-O. That's his record label. Thanks for listening to Tripital Radio. Now, the hero from Go Fish called Gotamu Hero. You listen to Tripital Radio.
Will they make fun? Where will they go when the time on earth is done? We gotta be the salt, we gotta be the light We gotta get left or we gotta get a right Try to be sensitive, it's got us in a mess Put on your armor and take one in the chest If you wanna bear fruit Tell it. We got the 
Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back in your section. With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. More power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies confound the academy. 
Bowed to his majesty, he paid thin salary, took up blame on Calvary. Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy. All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice. Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife. What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. Our debt is sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us sin, we got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition Lots of rhythm but not tradition No kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition Through crucifixion He mocked and crippled His opposition It's not some fiction I'm spitting The Son of God is risen And my incentive for godly living Is I'm forgiven Jesus came to unlock the prison And through the spirit He brings a new birth Like an obstetrician At times I listen A lot of Christian hip hop is missing The proper vision It's my suspicion We drop the mission Not to this But the word of God Is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fixes is our shot condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. They want Jesus in the background like elevator music But we gon' celebrate and relegate him, we refuse it They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself What I gotta say almost feels too real estate Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate If the Father wasn't gracious, no synonym He came straight blameless, no synonym Nothing's been the same since, no synonym Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no synonym. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent? Let the world still Jesus. When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest roofers. Christ put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to fetch cash from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed that was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater and the 
became a man, came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts, easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in a most exalted King Christ Supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, put your gate into prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night and his fright in the might in the dominant mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost and he found low, he was tamed and floss all around but remained for the manger, the cross or the clown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope but dope and then. All to the eye, to the S, to the E, to the N, that's what we hoping in. Written on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a born servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was fought with a price. We got a hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly Proportionate, everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son, preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me, the father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey from sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't. Acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments that center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his maker. And placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life death and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all freedom from the effects of the fall freedom from adam and eve in the garden of eden and from the law so the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised praising his name singing glory to god Adam, a historical person. This is Ken Ham, and we built a full-size Noah's Ark attraction south of Cincinnati. Many Christians today claim Adam wasn't a historical person. Instead, they say he was a mythological figure or tribal leader. But a historical Adam, as described in Genesis, is foundational to the gospel. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that because there was a first Adam who literally sinned and brought physical death into creation, we need the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Think about it. If Adam wasn't a historical person, then death isn't the punishment for sin. 
You see, in an old earth evolutionary view, death has always been part of creation. And if death isn't the consequence for sin, why did Jesus have to come and die a physical death? Yes, Adam was real. Want to know more about a historical Adam? Go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
God made Adam from dust. This is Ken Ham, president of Answers in Genesis and the popular Creation Museum. Many Christians have bought into evolutionary thinking about Adam. Some say Adam wasn't a historical person, but a descendant of some ape-like ancestor. But Genesis tells us God formed Adam from dust. Could this dust be a simpler way of saying ape-like creature? Of course not. You see, after sin, God specifically said to Adam that work will be hard until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. You came from dust and you'll return to dust. Now, we don't return to an ape-like creature when we die. And the Apostle Paul even mentioned that we came from dust. This is when Paul contrasted the corruption of Adam's body and the body of Jesus. Adam was historical. Learn about our full-size Noah's Ark attraction when you go to AnswersRadio.com and find answers to common questions about science and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. How do you walk with someone you 
Trusting the wisdom of God. This is Ken Ham heading up the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. For the last few days, we've been looking at the historicity of Adam. We've seen that the Bible's very clear that Adam was historical. The gospel is even founded on this fact. So why do many Christians deny his historicity? I claim it's because they've chosen to accept the wisdom of the world over God's wisdom. Instead of trusting that God accurately and clearly recorded for us in His Word what happened in the past, they've decided to put their faith in man's sinful, fallible ideas. And they've adjusted the Bible to fit them. But when man's ideas inevitably change, yet again, they'll have to change the Bible. Our faith shouldn't lie in man's ideas. We need to trust God's Word. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham on culture, science, and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Let's take it back to the foundation. Jesus Christ's impact and his salvation. I'm talking about Calvary, where his blood was lost. I'm talking the reality of the rugged cross. I'm talking about death, burial, and resurrection. I'm talking about reconciliation and election. Yeah, I'm repetitive because we're slow learners. Just that truth music. I am a sojourner. Reporting to you live from the wilderness. We strive on the pilgrimage. Alive because he's building his tribes in the villages. Revive us in villas with eyes diligent for our rival who pillages. Because he prowls around like a roaring lion But he's surely dying before the Lord is dying Defeat one was the cross, soon comes another loss Trust in Jesus, the ultimate undercover boss Hey yo, if you don't want the gospel, yo, turn this off You wanna hear a bunch of mumbling? Turn this off You want misogyny and guns? Yo, turn it off You got to turn it off, man, you got to turn it off You want Jesus on the low? Yo, turn this off You want me bragging about my flow? Yo, turn it off You want what's on the radio? Yo, turn this off You got to turn it off, man, you got to turn it off. I know it's been a while since I've been making songs. Some people even say, shy, yo, why you take so long? Sorry if you felt abandoned or hurt, but music took a back seat because we planted a church. How have I been? Thanks for asking. I can't complain. God is good. I've been enjoying my wife, enjoying fatherhood. I'm trying to think long-term sustainable. By God's grace, fruit, when I'm gone, is still attainable. I want to see new births and bound kids free. What good is making many waves if it tends to fade? I'm trying to produce works that outlive me. So God can Use my pen to save when I'm in the grave Writing this flying over the Atlantic I just can't help but think about the Titanic I preach Christ cause many without hope will drown This world is exactly like the boat, it's going down Hey yo, if you don't want the gospel, yo, turn this off You wanna hear a bunch of mumbling? Turn this off You want misogyny and guns? Yo, turn it off You got to turn it off, man, you got to turn it off You want Jesus on the low? Yo, turn this off You want me bragging about my flow? Yo, turn this off You want what's on the radio? Yo, turn this off You got to turn it off, man You got to turn it off Hey yo, it feels like the days of Noah This world is post-Christian The glory days are over Cats thirsty for the fame and would sell So they babble as they try to make a name for themselves They're shallow with mirth They try to flex and rebel But what you swallow on earth Will be digested in hell It's so profound You joke around You get broken down By Christ who holds the crown And sees through you like an ultrasound He's the reason I write A piece of advice Trust Jesus to Christ No matter your season of life Believe God and his promise Serve with fervor Before he plays the dishonest Serve shift 
worker, a thief in the night. Jesus, the light of the world, he's our delight. The reason that believers are hype, he won't leave us despite our previous life. The deviant type, by God's grace, get immediate sight. Hey yo, if you don't want the gospel, yo, turn this off You wanna hear a bunch of mumbling? Turn this off You want misogyny and guns? Yo, turn this off You got to turn it off, man, you got to turn it off You want Jesus on the low? Yo, turn this off You want me bragging about my flow? Yo, turn it off You want what's on the radio? Yo, turn this off You got to turn it off, man, you got to turn it off Yeah, I mean? Shout out to all my Christian soldiers repping Jesus Christ on the front lines Big Juice, what up? Bless Nazarite, I see you. Yo, Eshan, what up, man? Jackie Hill Perry, keep rapping them, sis. No matter what, keep rapping them. Keep rapping them. Species versus kinds. This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size ark south of Cincinnati. Trying to define a species is a difficult task for biologists today. Do you define them by their physical characteristics and reproduction or something else? The Bible doesn't use the modern term species. Instead, it describes God creating kinds that reproduce within their kind. This gives a hint of what a kind is, a group of animals that can reproduce with one another. Creationist biologists have determined that kind is about the same level as family in our modern classification system. God put a huge amount of variety into the DNA of each kind so they can diversify and fill the earth. And what we observe is kinds reproduce their own kinds. View a full transcript of this program or share it with your friends at AnswersRadio.com and sign up to receive daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my soul. 
This is Ken Ham, President of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. The Bible is unique because it's the only book that was written by both human authors and God himself. But does the Bible contain errors because it was recorded by humans? The writers in the Bible describe the scriptures as flawless, enduring forever, God-breathed. And the Bible says that God knows the end from the beginning and cannot lie, so we wouldn't expect his word to have errors. Now, if scripture has mistakes in it, how will we know where the errors end and the truth starts? All of a sudden, we as humans are putting ourselves as the authority over God's word. We're deciding which parts we want to trust and which parts we'll reinterpret. We need to trust all of God's word. Plan your visit to our full-size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com or listen to this program again or many others like it at AnswersRadio.com.
sovereign Lord, who can truly understand your depths? And you this life, you're the source of every man's breath. Your mysteries, the sharpest of minds can't guess. They stand perplexed, can't fathom what you plan next. In the garden, we failed your command's test. We transgressed, now our world is a grand mess. Lord, you're perfect, so why should you demand less? Man's best is only a sinking sand quest. But through Christ, watch God's saving hand flex. Redeem the people north, south, east, and west. Glorious robes in the promised land dress. We stand blessed, all because of the Lamb's death. So as we're lifting up our praise to you, receive it, Lord. The object of our affection, whom we adore. Fallen in our misery, you daughter it into history. The pardon of iniquity, startling the mystery. The ocean, the plains. Mountains, the rain, the universe proclaims the glory of your name. And what am I that you called me to your side? And took this heart of stone and broke it open wide.
but at the show for Truth Be Told Radio, we're going to with Yanti and Friends with the We Are Real. No. 